as we've heard, um, you know, uh, the feedback that we're getting from this series has just been absolutely tremendous. And uh, we've really got up to the, the part in, in chapter 6 where we're talking about the, the full armour of God and, um, and how many years we've been taught that you put on this and you put on the breastplate, you put the helmet on, you put the, uh, you know, the shoes on, you put on all those different things, the, the breastplate, the shield, uh, you take up the sword, and it's almost like it's all that physical stuff that you pick up. But somehow we've been so good at separating God from the actual armor. The armor's out there and God's out there. But in actual fact, as, we've, as Greg was talking about, the armor is Jesus. And the more we get to know him and the more he is living inside of us and being formed and shaped in us, the enemy can't touch us because he's a living reality within us. He is the armor. One of the greatest battles that we have is the battle of the mind where we believe what God has actually said and uh, is saying. <coughs> so in, in chapter 6, now just, just a short portion there, uh, verse 17, it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, the utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. What's the mystery that we've been discovering? <laughs> the bride of Christ, the eternal purposes of God. And Paul's, you know, the biggest battle of our mind is actually, what is this? How, how can this be? How can I be that? I can't see or perceive that. And so often we disqualify ourselves. Oh, that's for someone else, someone that's, been, that's really saintly or, or someone who's got all the potential and all that sort of thing, but... We're not really good enough. And so we discount ourselves out We at that. And yet, when we get to know him more and more, he gives us the confidence and the boldness to know actually that's what we are becoming as we are transformed and changed by him. Amen? And part of this mystery, we go back to chapter 5. And it says in verse 31, For this reason man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's probably one of the least preached messages in churches all around the world. I remember um, just asking uh, my sister, who's a, a lovely, lovely Christian lady, and got such a heart for God and helping people. And she'd been to Bible college. She's, she's done a lot of study in Hebrew and Greek and all sorts of things. And I said to her, have you heard about the bride of Christ? And she said, no. So it's interesting, eh? It's not being taught out there. And I'd never heard it either until I came here. So it's, it's one of these mysteries that God's actually revealing his actual internal purpose, which we've so missed. And you think, what? How did I do that? Well, we'll have a look and we'll see in a minute. So tonight I really want us to look at uh, a book, the book called Esther, because it's one of the most wonderful books that describes what it's like 
is the, the bride of Christ, if you like. It is a really incredible story. Now, I just uh, give you a warning. I'm not going to try and pronounce the king's name. <laughs> I listened to it on the concordance uh, this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. I, I, Xerxes? Yeah. Yeah, when, when I listened to the Hebrew pronunciation, it sounded quite, quite different. I thought, what? <laughs> so, King X, yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's, if we go to Esther chapter 2. Everybody managed to find Esther? It's an incredible book. But chapter 2, I'm just not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to go over some of it. And after these things, when the wrath of the king subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. That was his ex-wife, if you like, the queen. Then the king's servant who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty, uh, beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. And this thing pleased the king, and he did so. Verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadesha, which that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when the father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so it was when the king's command, uh, so when the king's command and decree were heard, and many young women were gathered at Shushan in the citadel, under the custody of Haggai. There Esther was also taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained favor so readily, oh, so readily gave her beauty preparations to her, besides her allowance, and then seven choice made servants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved and he moved her from the and her maid servants to the best place in the house of the woman. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the woman's quarters to learn how Esther's welfare and what was happen, happening to her. Verse 12. Each young woman's turn came to go into, king, into, the, into the king after she completed 12 months' preparation according to the regulations for the woman. And thus were the days of the preparation apportioned. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. And thus prepared, each woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. Verse 15. <laughs> now when it came turn for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as daughter to go to the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, uh, had said, um, the custodian of the woman, oh, sorry, I'll say that again, she requested nothing but what Haggai the king's eunuch, the, the custodian of the woman, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king, 
into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set a royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Incredible story. <clears throat> and it's, it's a mirror image, really, of what God is doing with us. If we have a look at it, it's really, really quite beautiful. The father is longs for a bride for a son. And that is what is this. It's that whole thing about the father God is longing for his son, for a groom, for a, for a bride to be chosen. And so there's that, what, what is the basis of this? What's the whole underlying thing? It's because of love. It's not for any other thing. It's love. It's the rooted and grounded in love. And that's who God is. God is love. So his desire for us to become his bride is not out of you have to be his bride. It's out of I love you to be his bride. It's out of love that he's calling us to come into. Because everything that he does is love. And when we are rooted and grounded in his love, we become unshakable no matter what is thrown at us. We don't become tossed to and fro. When you think of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21, it talks about his love, his unshakable love. I'll just read that bit. Where is it? Uh, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and the depth, and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. So it's not just a learning thing. It's a, it's a deep inner conviction that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's so beautiful. So everything God does is love, and his love actually is very stable. It doesn't flirt up and down. It is rooted. And when we're rooted and grounded in his love, we become unshakable. We're standing on a solid rock. We're not, am I loved or am I not loved? You know, how we go so up and down with our emotions. His love is constant. And his desire for oneness, companionship, covenant. He's looking not just for one person. He's looking for a body. Sometimes we think, oh, it's just an individual, but it's not. It's actually a body of people that love him, that are called and are called according to his purpose. So a decree is issued forth. And the first thing we see is that the king appointed officers. Isn't that interesting? To get the message across, he appointed officers throughout the land to declare the king's intent. And that's exactly what God does today, isn't it? He has given us what? He's given us the fivefold to declare, um, um, to decree his message. Ephesians 4. See, there's so much in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. So he's given 
appointed people to be able to be channels of his message across the earth. That's how God works. Ephesians 3, verse 3 to 5 says, uh, is also another really good scripture there as well, but I won't read that one. But God is declaring his heart from the heavenly realm to his apostles and prophets on the earth, who in turn declare it to you in the natural. But its source is from the spirit realm and can only be perceived through the spirit. You can never hear what God is saying in the natural realm. It has to be the spirit that speaks to your heart. Otherwise, it'll only just be information. And those who declared it traveled throughout the land, proclaiming boldly with urgency the message that was entrusted to them. Now listen here. They didn't change it, nor did they alter it. They didn't even try to present it through entertainment or attract people to come. They didn't try and sell it. They were simply vessels used to distribute that which was entrusted to them and to those who heard it. And people responded. They represented the king. They were like an ambassador. And so today, you know, when people are carrying that mantle of whether it's apostle, pastor, prophet, teacher, whoever it is, evangelist, they carry something that they've got to be able to know that they don't change things the way that they interpret it. But they decree exactly what God is saying. Because they're ambassadors, they represent somebody. They don't say what they want to say. They say exactly what God is saying. The interesting thing is that not one of the messengers or those that are appointed are actually named. How often we build ourselves up Hey, I'm this or I'm that. I've got an incredible ministry. Can you look at me? Can you see the number of people that are coming to see me? Have you seen the number of books I've written? We try and build ourselves up. And yet, actually, we're only vessels that God wants to use. Why do you think it is that God uses nobodies a lot of the time? It's him. That's right. And they've got no reputation to lose. (laughs) True? (laughs) And so often we try and do it ourselves. I don't know whether you've ever seen the... I've never seen the film, but there was a film called Lost in Translation. And so we can... We've taken the message of God and we've twisted it the way that we think it's going to be. And something that was so beautiful and so simple has now been twisted out of proportion. Because suddenly we think it's just, it's just too simple. It's just, you know, this can't be right. So we'll make it more appealing, more attractive to the masses. So you get people focusing on, it's all about hell and brimstone, fire. We don't deserve his love. Well, at least we mentioned the word love. <laughs> But in a different context, you know what I mean? It can be, it's all about love and nothing else but love, you know? (laughs) And we take it and do we twist it to the other extreme? Or we, we talk about the gifts. It's all about the gifts now and building on those gifts. 
or it's about the signs and wonders. That has to be the icing on the cake. The signs and wonders gets bums on seats. It actually draws the crowds in. It's, it's incredible. So we focus on that. Or it's about the being blessed. It's all about me being blessed. That's the, that's the gospel I heard when I, when I got saved. Come to God and you'll, all your problems will be thrown away. And you'll be blessed. And you are blessed if you consider if you had two cars and maybe a boat and a holiday home and lots of money coming in. That's what they considered being blessed. How empty those things are. They have no eternal worth or value at all. Then we've made it all about spiritual warfare. We've made it all sorts of things. We've made it about people being healed and wounded, you know, that that need healing. We've made it about ourselves. It's my ministry, and you guys are going to pay for it. Please donate. (laughs) You know what I mean? We've made it about all these different things. Then we've added entertainment to it. Are we not entertained? <laughs> Yells out Russell Crowe in, in The Gladiator. <laughs> but then there's also when man, and I'm going to show you a clip in a few moments, of when man has taken what God has shown him and then we've tried to take it ourselves and build it the way that we think it should be done. And sadly, when you look at the results... It looks a little bit embarrassing to the world. Let's have a look. See what I mean? (laughs) They saw a plan, they saw the picture of what it was meant to be, and they tried to create it their own way. And uh, (laughs) it didn't look quite so good. But what about, I I love Sam's message on emulate and imitate. Emulate was what? Can anyone remember? What's emulate? It's trying to copy something. It's an external thing of trying to copy something, but no internal thing has happened, which is imitate. And so we can, when we're around certain people who carry something, we suddenly switch it on. Wow, this is really good. But when they're not there, suddenly we go, we always default back to what we truly are. So let's have a look at the second clip.
<laughs> so God wants to do something that's deep inside of us that actually changes us. And we're not going to be <laughs> you know, just doing our own thing and, and going back to what we were. The last clip I just want to show you very quickly is because the church is trying to enforce things so forcefully, because they're trying to build something, they're trying to coax you, they're trying to win you, they have to enforce it. And so they lay down the law almost. Let's have a look at this last one. When we asked Reebok to send us Terry Tate, some people thought we were crazy. But I'm a firm believer in paradigm breaking, outside the box thinking. Hey, buddy. Break was over 15 minutes ago, Mitch! And since Terry's been with us, our productivity has gone up 46%. We're getting more from our employees than ever before. You know you need a cover sheet on your TPS reports, Richard! That ain't new, baby! Hey, Terry. Hey, Janice! But what's really impressed me is how Terry's become part of the Felcher family. He fits right in here. That's a long distance call, Doug. To be honest, I wish Reebok sent us ten Terry Tates. You want to play games, Gene? Well, when it's game time, it's pain time, baby. Churches have tried to, to force things, you know, and dictated and done all sorts of things like that to, to get the people into line. And yet it's a heart issue. It's actually God wants to do a deep work in our hearts that we want to, oh, you know, this is something that we want to do out of the love from our hearts, not being forced or not being, you know, you know what I mean? Like robots. And yet the message of the bride suddenly been lost. We talked about the bride just, I guess, about five, ten minutes ago. We've had all that go on. And that's the dominant voice in the church today. And yet suddenly, actually, yeah, we talked about the bride five minutes ago. Or, you know, we almost forgot about it. You know what I mean? We get so caught up with what everything else is going on. And yet it's the simple of what God is bringing that we've actually lost. See, we've made it all about the messenger. It's my ministry, my gifting, my popularity, my ratings. Compare that to John the Baptist. He never committed any great miracle or anything like that. In fact, he did nothing. And yet he was the greatest prophet of all time. And yet he who is less than John the Baptist is considered even greater. See, that's the way the kingdom thinks, and yet we think we've got to do greater things to be noticed. Even Christ, there was nothing in Christ that we should be physically uh, attracted to him. And yet he carried something that changed the world. Amasa is a really interesting character. I'm not going to go too much into him in 2 Samuel chapter 20. He was given a task by King David to go and do something. It was a thing of urgency, but when it came, about three days had passed and nothing had happened. Where did they find him? He was standing on a mound or standing on a stone. It's almost like self-importance. We get so caught up with our own self-importance, we lose the task of what God is doing. And then Job got rid of him. (laughs) I won't go there either. But you know what I mean? We get so caught up in ourselves that we lose focus on what actually God's actually saying and talking. We've even made it about the message. 
We've made it all about the message with our own twist. Somehow we've separated the message from the one who issued it. And our focus has come off him. When he is not intertwined with us, the message becomes information. Great principles to live by. Abstract concepts that have, that's somewhere out there. He's always out of reach. And yet he's the living word. He's alive. It's not words written on a page. He is the word being formed and shaped in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. <coughs> we were created to become the living message. So it's not about the message. It's about the one who issued the message being alive in us, that we become a living message to the world and to those around us. 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 2 to 3, You are an epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the, by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of flesh that is of the heart. So that's what we were created, the living message within us. And there's a huge difference between about speaking a message and those who become the message. It's huge. One is external, the other one is internal. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, God is reveal, revealing his intent towards us. Can we hear it? And over the last nine years, really, this, this church has been hearing a frequency that is different. But ah, is it stirring up? Our hearts. Is it doing something within us that says, actually, I want to be a part of this. I want God to change me so I become that living message. And out of all the noise and the banter and the yelling and the screaming and, and all sorts of things that you hear through a lot of the Christian circles, are we hearing his frequency? Second Corinthians eleven two to three. This is what Paul says: For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. And that's exactly what we've done. We've we've butted it up. We've done so many different things that taken away the simplicity of what it was. The next point I want to bring out is those who heard the message gathered, gathered together. And Esther's day, it was very clear and precise. And those who heard it, and today, as we know, many people struggle to know, is it this, or is it that, or is it this, or is it this? Or There's a hundred different things out there, and yet there is that simple thing of what God is doing. However, the bride has to be revealed to us. It can't be just preached about. It can't be just another sermon. It has to be revealed in our hearts. What is it about the bride? What are you showing me, Lord? How can I be part of that? What are you doing in my heart? You know, there's these things that we have to ask if we're not walking in it or if we haven't seen it. That's okay. As long as we're asking God these questions about what are you doing? What, what, are, you, what are you bringing me into? Or us into. 
Ephesians 1, 17 to 20. And I often pray this over my own life. It's the one where he talks about the eyes of our hearts or the eyes of our understanding have to be opened, enlightened. I think that word enlightened, I think it's like, um, I think it's fatesia. It's like the camera clicks on something, click. It captures something that's so beautiful. It's, 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 a, it's an image that it clicks, you know, captures. And that's exactly what revelation is. It captures something that does something in here. And I often pray that over my heart. Boy, do I need my eyes being opened daily. Ephesians 5, 31, verse 32. For this reason man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become fresh, uh, flesh. And this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ, the church. <laughs> In Ephesians five seventeen, Therefore do not be un- unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And Paul mentions that a number of times through these letters. Understand what the will of the Lord is. The next point, chosen. And those who heard gathered from all over the empire were chosen to go to the king's palace. And Esther was chosen. Oh, but, but hang on a minute. She was an orphan. Surely that disqualifies her. She was an outcast. She wasn't really accepted because she's an orphan. How come she's accepted? And yet Esther refused to become a victim She knew her identity in God, and she had a quiet confidence. When I read through the book of Esther, there's no loud Esther. It's not, hey, look at me, everybody. I'm going to be this, or I'm going to be that. It's a quiet confidence within her that that she knows who she is in God, and she's able to walk calmly and quietly. True confidence is not an external performance that looks the part, but an internal reality that causes them to stand. And pressure always reveals what's truly on the inside. Do we know? Yep. Uh, true confidence is not an eternal, external performance, sorry, external performance that looks the part, but an internal reality that causes them to stand. So it's something that's quiet on the inside, but it's something that's firm. It's not being tossed to and fro. You actually have that quiet confidence in God. I guess it's very similar to what David had. You know, when he went to face the the giant, he had a quiet confidence in him. He knew that God was with him. It's that, that sort of confidence. Do we know who we truly are in him? And as I said, this is the biggest battle of our mind. It's not about trying to discover who we are. It's about discovering who he is, and the rest falls into place. Again, we separated it out. It's all about discovering who we are. Actually, if we get our eyes off who we are and get our eyes onto who he is, we discover then who we are. But we've made it all over the other way. See how we twist it? Everything's, we've tried to separate everything out. But it's not worked like that. But in the end, you know, we're all, we're all like orphans. We're all 
um, we've all been chosen regardless of our background or what we've been through, of our past, our ups and downs, our, you know, it doesn't really, it's not factored in it at all. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and he made you alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 6, But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together that, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's for you, for all of us. In uh, chapter 2, verse 13 to 18, But now in Christ, Jesus Christ, Sorry, Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And he came and preached peace to those who are far off and to those who are near, for through him we both have access by the one Spirit, the Father. Isn't it amazing, that wall of separation, we weren't accepted, and then suddenly he breaks that down and says, hey, look, I'm calling you all. You're all called to be the bride. You're all called to come, but are you listening and hearing so that you want to be part of? It doesn't mean that you're not being saved. It purely is God is calling you to a greater thing, to become part of, not just as one, but as a body. It's a beautiful thing when we capture it in our heart, but we somehow disqualify ourselves thinking we're not good enough. And I know exactly how that feels. I used to do it over myself, over and over and over again. And I was a Christian. I'm not good enough. But actually, it's a lie that we've learned to buy in. And God has made us someone, his child. We're no longer orphans, but sons and daughters. It's the most beautiful thing. Again, it has to be revealed to us. Esther saw herself as a bride, not as a victim, and she was willing to subject herself to the king's will, no matter the cost. She simply presented herself and said, yes, have your way, just like Mary did. How powerful can our yeses be? She saw herself as a bride and prepared herself accordingly. Her focus shifted from her own pursuit to coming into alignment with the king's will. You know, when you get, ladies, when you get engaged, and Kate will know this at the moment, when you get engaged, what's your, your focus on? It's on the wedding, isn't it? It's getting married. So your, your whole sh- focus shifts from what you were doing, which may have been work, the, the, the doldrums of whatever grind you were in before. Suddenly, I'm getting married, and suddenly, Bang, everything is focused on that. So she left her own pursuit to actually follow something else. She was not only going to be a bride, because that's where we think it ends, but she was also going to be a queen. She was going to rule and reign with the king. But we've sometimes we just stop at the bride. Actually, there's more. There's more. Now, note, she didn't go, she didn't try to do it to gain power. She didn't try to do it to manipulate a situation. There was no hidden agenda in Esther. 
It was purely from her heart that she subjected herself to the king. And the same thing with us. We can't go into this with, a, with an agenda of any sort at all. That has to die. Because otherwise we carry baggage or we carry something with us to try and get our way. Now that's not exactly what God is doing. You can't twist God's arm. When we come to him, we have to surrender everything. She had to leave all that she knew in order to come into the new. It's the old wineskin and the new wineskin. She left all that was familiar, all that she loved, all her dreams, her ambitions, her family. Everything had to be laid down. There was no half-hearted effort. How often do we look at what we are losing rather than what we are gaining? Isn't it incredible? She had so much on offer there. But when you look back... I mean, she had so much there too. But she let it go for something far greater than her own dream and purpose. Just like the rich young rulers we've heard so many times before, Jesus said to him, go and sell all that you've got and give it to the poor and come and follow me and I will give you. But his focus was on what he was losing, not what he was going to receive, which was far greater. And uh, Ephesians 1, 3 and 3.20, I won't read those for now, but the road before her was impossible, almost. It was beyond her. In her own effort, she would never last the distance. However, the king knew that and provided a way so that she didn't have to do it in her own strength. In fact, she could do it in a position of rest. Isn't that beautiful? She didn't have to strive to become a bride. She could do it resting in who she was. How could that be when there's so much to do? There's flowers to get and there's this to do and there's, you know, we can get so caught up with all the different things that are going on, we forget that we can actually rest. We don't have to strive to become the bride. We can rest in him and allow him to do the work in us. So the king knew that he, she couldn't do it herself, so he provided a helper. Haggai, the king's eunuch, was entrusted with the king's plans and desires. He was given sole charge of the young ladies to prepare them for marriage. His whole focus was to select prepare, transform, teach, guide, and instruct the young woman with an end goal in mind. He knew the beginning from the end. The eunuchs were, of course, as you heard what Sam was saying a couple of weeks back, eunuchs were men that were, had been castrated, unable to function as normal men, but they could be entrusted and set aside for the king's business. They also knew the king very well. And that's so important. They knew what the king liked, what he didn't like, how he felt about this, or how he, you know, all the different things that the king desired, what frustrated him. And he was able to prepare the king's bride to become like him. And we ourselves have not been left by ourselves. God has purposely given us his Holy Spirit to prepare, to teach, to guide, to strengthen, to transform, to prepare, and the list goes on. 
in John 14. This is wonderful. John 14, verse 16 to 18 says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be, with, be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So he's not, you know, God has never left us as orphans. He's actually preparing us with his Holy Spirit. And he's there, living in us. And it's so powerful when we think about it. And so often we try and ignore it. If God has given us the Holy Spirit, why is it we try and do it ourselves? We've been taught man's ways where we have to strive to achieve what God wants of us. But if we try hard enough, we will make it. And yet God is saying, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest, striving, sweat, no sweat. <laughs> I don't know why you put on that side. But you know what I mean. We try so hard to do it. And yet Jesus had to rely on the Holy Spirit the whole time, every day, for every moment. And yet somehow the Holy Spirit is somewhere, somehow detached out there. And yet it said in that scripture that he would be where? Within us. How reliant are we on the Holy Spirit? A man doesn't like asking directions, does he? We can do it ourselves. We don't need a map. But I know it's around here somewhere. Have you seen that program, the DIY program? Or DIY Rescue? It used to be on TV a few years ago where, where guys would say, yes, I'll do the, the renovations for the bathroom, or I'll do the renovations for this or that, and they'd start. And they'd leave it in such a terrible mess that the, the wife would get so frustrated that she'd ring up these proper builders and they'd come in and, and they'd come in to fix the problem. And it was called DIY, uh, DIY Rescue. <laughs> it was quite embarrassing. <laughs> but it's so true. We, we try and we get God's help when we cry out when something goes wrong. He helps us through it. Thank you, God. I can now take it from here. But that's not the situation God wants us to live by. He wants us to actually rely on him day by day, moment by moment. And it's learning to walk in him and through the power of the Holy Spirit, being able to walk through all different types of situations with him in us. And that's so powerful. So God has given us. He's our guarantor. He's our promise. He's there. And he knows the king better than anybody. He's one with the king. So why are we holding off? Why do we hold him off at arm's length when he knows? It's really pride and independence that tries to take over. And it's just, in fact, it's, it's just as big in Christians than it is in non-Christians. Every situation we face is an opportunity for God to be glorified in our lives. We are never alone in our journey. So everything that we face, God does. He's there to help us, to walk us through. 
Esther was not only given favor, but she had specific people around her to encourage her on the way. There are other people, maidservants, that were gathered around her to help and support her. So God has given each of us to support each other. He's given us his Holy Spirit to walk with us through the journey, but he's also placed people around us to help encourage us on the way. When we try and do it our own, we can't do it. (laughs) We become lone rangers. We become off track. But isn't isn't God good? about how he tries to help us. He places us within a body to help each other. Sometimes we lose sight of that. And then there was the process. Again, this is where man tries to separate the process from the person. Give me a set of instructions that I then I can know how to do it. List 1 2 3 A B and C. Whatever it is, give me the instructions and I'll do it. And yet who is the process? Christ. Again, this is another one where we've separated it out. Jesus is the process. And to be honest, I thought it was a list of A, B, and C. That's how I'd been brought up. I had my lists and I worked through it faithfully and tried ever so hard to become like it said. But you know, an external thing never changes the inside. It has to be him that does it. He is the process. He not only wants to set you free, but make you free, as Sam was saying. The most common error in all of us is we don't think we need God to transform us. I'm mature. I've been a Christian a long time. I am mature. Actually, Christ is perfecting us. That's maturity. And it starts, and it goes right the way until we are with him. There is no ending. When we've suddenly thought we've arrived already, we've got a problem. Esther, then she stepped forward. You know, when Esther first went into the process of stepping forward, she only knew about the king. She didn't know the king. But as she journeyed, towards becoming the bride she got to know the, she got to know him the king with the help of the one who was there to help her every step of the way the more she got to know Haggai the more she got to know the king the more we get to know the holy spirit the more we get to know the lord he's there to reveal it that's his desire is to reveal Christ to us It's so powerful. It's like Rebecca and the head servant of Abraham. Remember they were coming back? And Rebecca was asking Abraham's servant all about Isaac. What was he like? By the time she actually saw him, she knew so much about him. And it's the same thing with our journey. Esther had begun the journey. She hadn't arrived. She couldn't couldn't appear before the king until she had undergone a transformation. Now, this was the king's way, not Esther's. If we knew that there was a a transformation period where we were going to have to go through things, how many of us would actually put our hand up? Uh, Actually, you know, we'd we'd rather have the the easier way around here, this, you know. 
And yet, this was the king's way. There was 12 months of preparation, six months of oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Now, most of the women here, I would say, would say, yes, give me the perfume. <laughs> I wouldn't mind soaking in a, uh, they might say, I wouldn't mind soaking in a bath for six months in <laughs> perfume. <laughs> Did you know I, I was uh, doing a, a quiz on Latvia. Uh, there's a lady going there, and I do quizzes on a Friday. And I did it on Latvia. And one of the things about Latvia is that they, you can actually go in in the wintertime and have a spa in warm beer. <laughs> Apparently it's quite a, an amazing thing, but I just thought, wouldn't that be sticky? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's like there was a practical joke. I don't know whether you've ever heard of the practical joke of of a shower cap. If you unscrew it and you put a boiled lolly in there and screw it back up. So when people hop in the shower and they turn the hot water on, <laughs> they they get all the sticky feeling. And I think, oh, what's going on? <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> I don't know whether you can take those shower heads off now. <laughs> Probably a good thing. But the first six months, myrrh was a bitter plant that was often used for burial. The three wise men came gifts uh, when Jesus was a child of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Isn't that interesting? It was also used for healing qualities. You see, it was a thorny bush or a sort of a, a small tree that was bled for its resin. And Jesus was bled to make us whole. Isn't it amazing when you think of it and the thorns that were in that bush? It was used as a remedy to heal all sorts of sicknesses and wounds. Apparently it was very good for your teeth or your gums, apparently. if you had. But anyway, it was very, very bitter. And in the same way, God wants to heal our hearts and make us free from the bondages we've all been clinging to, so that we don't carry the baggage into the marriage. And I think it was Mel that said a percentage of marriages break up because they've never, either the husband or the wife have never left home. They cling to their parents, and so they don't let go, and of course they bring all this baggage in to a marriage, and it causes issues. (coughs) And there has to be a dying process in all of us. Our flesh has to die in order for us to come into all that God has for us. And God then redefines everything. And it's so important that, you know, God wants us to lay everything down before him, that we don't carry the things of the past with us and allow him to heal those deepest wounds, that we don't hold anything back. I was just watching the shack the other day. And, uh, you know, Mac couldn't move on until Papa had healed the wounds that held him back. She said to him, man was designed to be loved just as a bird was designed to fly. We were designed to be loved. But sometimes the harshness of life, sometimes the things of life can put calluses around our heart. We can have wounds that need healing. And the myrrh was used for healing. And God wants to do that healing within us that we become free. We all need that healing. 
And then, of course, we we talked we've talked a number of times about the wilderness experience, broken and restored. And then the beautifying uh, process then could begin. You know, you can't try and well, you can try and cover up a wall that's got cracks and you know foundations are not right, and you try and cover it up with a whole lot of plaster and all sorts of things. But when the shaking begins, what happens? The cracks reappear, and it's the same thing here. We can't become the fragrance of Christ if there's a lot of baggage around us that we keep holding on to. And that's the whole thing. That beauty restoration thing is about the fragrance of Christ being formed in us. We become that fragrance. To some people, it's life, and to others, it's death. But we carry the fragrance of him within us if we allow that work to be done. And there's such a beautiful smell of of life and love in somebody that's truly allowed that healing process to take place. Our flesh stinks no matter how hard we try to cover it up. In the 1700s, it was very rare for, for, for people to have baths. Um, some people would bath every two or three months or something like that, but they used to have a whole lot of powder over them. And they used to try and put little black spots to try and make them beauty spots. But it was to try and cover up the smell. It didn't work, I don't believe. (laughs) And finally, true oneness and intimacy. Remember, when Esther began her journey, she only knew about the king. By the time she'd come to the end of her preparation, she uh, she, she is coming now to truly know him. He is being revealed to her bit by bit. So much so that she now truly desires him. The other virgins, when they went before the king, what did they do? They took what they desired before the king. But what did Esther do? She requested nothing but whatever Haggai, the king's eunuch, advised. There's a big difference there. So she listened She listened to what she was given advice to. And then because the guy knew the king, she carried out that wish. And, of course, the king accepted her. And it's the same thing with us. (coughs) How much do we listen to the Holy Spirit? What is it that the king desires? What is it that God or, you know, Jesus desires? We'll only hear that through the Holy Spirit as he shows us. Or are we taking what we desire before him and ask him to bless it? She was now thinking and speaking like the king. She had matured not just in natural external beauty, but she contained a beauty from within. Isn't that beautiful? And she became his bride and ruled with him. And that's what God wants to do with each and every one of us. It's a beautiful picture of Esther and, and, and what it's like for us. I don't know whether we've ever seen it like that, but there's so much more for us to come into as we lay our hearts down before him. Amen. So, Father, we just thank you and bless you. We thank you for what you're inviting us to be partakers of. And you don't leave us as wounded Um, people on the side, but you actually take that time to heal and restore us so that your love can be brought within 
and creates such a, a freedom within that we are truly set free, that we can come and be your bride without any hindrance, without any feeling of condemnation, and being full of, of your spirit within us. And I just pray tonight that, Lord, each one of us would desire more and more to come to know the Holy Spirit because he was given to us for this journey. So may we walk in that together and encourage each other along the way. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.